Greetings, Rodmo here from the Ale Evangelist Show, and you're listening to the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Hello? Podcast of verbal narcissism for ugly journalists. Hello, can I talk to Mr. David, Jay Bowman? Approach and identify. Hello? The decisive vote of the 36th state against prohibition is happy news for the grain raisers of the United States and for many others throughout the land. With an eye on December 5th, work is being rushed in distilleries and bottling works. Thousands are being called back to work in plants of allied industry. At least 500,000 new jobs are predicted as a result of repeal. From keg and barrel factories, perhaps the most closely allied lines, Immediate benefits from repeal extend into almost every line of business and commerce. However, everyone's not waiting until December 15th. The lid is off in many places, with the downfall of prohibition being celebrated in real old-time hilarity. From the packed Northwest studio of the Podcast 99 Network, located in beautiful downtown Silverdale, Washington, this is Plausibly Live, the Dave Bowman Show podcast. Now, here is your host, the submarine qualified, well coffeeed, rules driven, elitist history buff, Dave Bowman. Weapons calling here, permission to fire. That's permission to fire, non weapons out. Well, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happening in the world today, most of them still far beyond our control, you might say. So perhaps it's time we took a pause and thought about life and thought about the laws of the United States, prohibition, the 21st Amendment and humanity. Don't touch that dial. Just try to hear me out for a while. Well, it's the 21st Amendment, the transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. Here's how you get a hold of me. Area code 209-565-DAVE is the text machine. Email is dave at the thedavebowmanshow.com. And of course, we're on the web. Just look for the Dave Bowman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and the web. A loqui conizio. Stand up, tell those who oppose liberty. Don't tread on me. Well, they say that, um, they say that I just pushed the wrong button again. They say that politics makes the strangest of bedfellows. I don't know that at any point in our history that was ever more true than in the idea and the implementation implementation of prohibition in the United States of America. We're going to talk about that today, but specifically we're going to look at the repeal side because this past week, April 7th, was the day that we kind of celebrated Beer Day, National Beer Day in the United States of America. And I got into a kind of a chat, text chat with uh, the Ale Evangelist, who you can also hear on Podcast 99. I got into a chit-chat with him about some of the things that, well, it was kind of celebratory. We're going to have a beer to, to celebrate National Beer Day. But then we kind of got talking into some of the the effects of how this thing works. It's, it, it, it isn't as, sometimes with the Constitution, we make things way more complicated than they need to be. And sometimes we don't make them, we, we oversimplify them to the point where we don't really understand them. Almost nothing happens in the Constitution without a very specific reason. Almost nothing happens without purpose. Almost nothing happens without some way of affecting things and and being done that way for a very specific reason. 
And I'm afraid that sometimes we forget those reasons. I do. For years, I have asked a question, a specific question, about one element in the Constitution. And I've never gotten an answer until I started digging into the 21st Amendment. Now, philosophically, I understand why things are being done the way they're being done. We tend to think of the 21st Amendment as being simple. 18th Amendment made booze illegal. Everything. Wine, spirits, beer, the whole nine yards. We're doing away with it. Get rid of it. Gone. And we tend to think of the 21st Amendment as simply the reaction to that. Now it is legal. Now you can have it. But like most things, it wasn't that simple, was it? So we turn today to the 21st Amendment of the United States Constitution. Uh, Section 1 is pretty simple. The 18th Amendment, the 18th Article of Amendment to the... uh, the 18th Article of Amendment to the, United, to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. Pretty simple words, but for some reason I can't say them today. I'm not sure why. The transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. In Section 3, this article shall be inoperative unless it has been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the conventions of the several states as provided in the Constitution within seven years from the date of submission hereof to the states by the Congress of the United States. It seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? 18th Amendment is repealed. Yay! And that's about as far as we read on a normal basis. That's about as far as we go. Because... Either we don't want to know about the rest of it, or we just don't care. We don't, we don't think that mm, there's anything in it. But oh my gosh. When we talk about the Constitution on Constitution Thursday, we talk about what it says, why it was written that way, what went into the thoughts, how it affected things, that, and how it affects our lives today. And guess what? The 21st Amendment affects your life today in more ways sometimes than we even think about. And that's what we're going to get into. As I said, prohibition made for some strange political bedfellows. If you think about prohibition, it, it's, it's, it's weird if you think about what it is. Prohibition was a conservative, what, what would normally be conservative, considered a conservative religious value. I don't think you'd get much argument about that. The idea of not drinking was very much an evangelical movement of the 1860s, 1870s, and that era. It was very, the temperance movement really became powerful during that Victorian era, this I, the early Victorian era, post-Civil War in America, but in England with, uh, with John Wesley and a few others. It, it really kind of became a religious fervor. The belief, religiously, and I can say this, okay, again, caveat here, I spent most of my life, until 2008, and I was born in 63, I spent virtually my entire life as a member of the world's largest temperance organization, the Salvation Army. My parents are Salvation Army officers, my grandparents were uh, leaders, lay leaders in the Salvation Army, my 
my ancestors, I'm basically fourth generation Salvation Army person. So we, uh, hi, Roderick, I'm on his big screen. Yay. Um, that's become the thing now. Take a picture of me on your big screen and send it in. That's cool. I love it. So I, I have some, I, have, I speak with some authority on temperance movements. My father is and has been a member of the Prohibition Party for basically his entire life. When he really doesn't want to vote for, for whoever's running, he votes Prohibitionist Party. He still does. It still exists, by the way. The platform of the Prohibition Party is Restore Prohibition. There is a belief amongst the prohibitionists and the teetotalers that, that alcohol, the consumption of alcohol by people, is bad, that it leads to destruction. I have personally sat through sermons given by my father about the dangers of alcohol. I grew up, my father was the officer, the minister, however you want to describe it, at a what, what most people would call a mission in downtown Denver, Larimer Street, doesn't exist anymore. When I was 9, 10, 11 years old, my best friends were winos and, and prostitutes on Larimer Street in Denver. And I learned very early on the dangers of drink by watching these guys. Today we would call them homeless people, but in those days they were called winos. And they would drink and they would go uh, spend their time, you know, in those places. And they would they would do that. And my phone is ringing again. I don't get it. Um, the uh, I tell people, don't call me during this time. But they do it anyway. At any rate, the, the I, I saw very close up the idea of, of dealing with the dangers of alcohol. And it affected my life. I was not a drinker. For most, for much of my life, I didn't drink the whole time I was in the Navy, which is bizarre. Well, that's not totally true. I did drink on my 21st birthday. But, but beyond that, it was, was something that I didn't do a lot of. And it wasn't until later on in my life that I discovered that, you know, it's not, it's not the boogeyman people make it out to be. It's like anything else that can be abused. I mean, I've, I've taken opioid painkillers in the last couple of years for my knees. Well, Am I addicted to opioid painkillers? No. We tend to over-exaggerate sometimes the dangers because there is political benefit in doing so. And so we, we got to be cautious. And prohibition is a great example of this. Prohibition, the, the temperance movement, the prohibition movement, Carrie Nation and those folks were really, really di- invested in the idea that if they could just get rid of drink, if they could just get rid of alcohol, the world would be nirvana, that everything would be better that men would be able to work, that women would be, you know, not beaten by their husbands, that, that, that children would grow up happy and strong, that the world would be a utopia. And this, again, was a conservative religious idea that gained a lot of traction within the churches. A lot of traction. Particularly the evangelical Protestant churches really uh, became gung-ho with this. But what they lacked was the political ability to do anything about it. Then through a lot of strange circumstances, you ended up with an idea that progressives within the government of the United States realized that the regulation, control, elimination of alcohol would give them a great deal of government control over things. And so you had this strange melding 
of a conservative idea, conservative religious value, with a progressive strategy and goal. And eventually you end up with the 18th Amendment. We could spend days on that, but I don't have time to do that because we've got to get to the 21st today. And so prohibition was eventually enacted, most likely on the basis of public relations rather than any real belief amongst every American. I think if you'd have taken an actual secret ballot vote, it probably wouldn't have passed. But because it was done very much the way that a public relations firm would do things now, it was pushed as, this is what's best for Mary. Everybody knows, everybody knows that alcohol is dangerous. Everybody knows that these things are a problem. Everybody knows these things, and so it was pushed in that direction. Well, come to pass, of course, it goes into effect, and, and what ends up happening? Well, you have a whole lot of unintended consequences, don't you? If we were to sit here and outline those unintended consequences, we could be here all day, and it really depends upon your political viewpoint as to what, and what the bad parts of prohibition was. Was it an attempt to legislate morality, which is, you know, antithetical to the American spirit? Was it a failed experiment because we didn't do it right? And if we did it again, we'd know better. And next time we could, next time we could try it a little bit differently. Hmm. Was it a good idea that was mismanaged? You know, if, if only they'd have done it the way we set it up to do it, it would have been fine. But they didn't. Who knows? I mean, you can find arguments for any of those things, but some of the unintended consequences are pretty obvious. Crime was the first one. Crime went out out the window. I mean, it just, all of a sudden, what had been a relatively peaceful, calm, well-to-do nation became crime-ridden at basically every level. I mean, we're very familiar with the gangs of Chicago. We're, we're very familiar with the New York situations and uh, things like that, but... There was so much crime that it affected even small-town America. There, I mean, we, we, we see the, the movies and the newsreels, and we see the television programs, and we see the things that, that give us an idea of some of those crimes, but we don't even really grasp the entirety of it, primarily because what we don't really understand is how much became illegal. The things that were going on in attempts to bypass the laws that were now illegal, smuggling, became a huge problem. The revenue cutters chasing down smugglers in the, uh, the Roanoke areas of, of, of the Carolinas and the importation of alcohol in places that, you know, you wouldn't have imagined it would even try. The, the importation of alcohol in places that you would expect it to try all of a sudden became huge issues. And, of course, those issues required a government response. Well, it's the government's responsibility to enforce this law. It's a federal law, the Volstead Act, which enforced the 18th Amendment. It's not a local law. So guess who has to do this? Well, of course, the federal government needs more power, more, more agents, more G-men, more authority, ever-growing authority, to combat the importation and distribution for consumption of alcoholic beverages. And yet, somehow or another, they couldn't keep up with the crime. 
every time they would move to do something different or bigger or better, of course, the criminals would come up with a better way or faster way or sneakier way of doing something. Some of it we find bemusing, the speakeasies and the special knocks, the the windows, you know, that kind of stuff. And some of it, the moonshiners. Some of it we find disturbing to the point where we don't even really understand it. The shootings, the violence, the arrests, the throwing of people in prison for these kinds of things. The government control in, in searching on really questionable basis for probable cause of alcohol. The loss of jobs was a secondary unintended consequences. Think of all the things that go into making your preferred beverage, whatever that might be. In today's world, somebody has to grow the grain. Somebody has to, you know, make the alcohol. Somebody has to make the container you're going to put it in, the glass, the bottle, the keg. Somebody has to make the tap. Somebody has to make all of those things that are associated with it more than just the distillers or the brewers. By some estimates, when prohibition was finally repealed, almost a million jobs, some say 500,000, some say a million, 500,000 jobs just in the ancillary, just in the, the things that supported the manufacture, transportation, importation of alcoholic beverages for consumption. That's in addition to the distillers and the brewers and all that stuff. Literally millions of jobs on the line here. And so that was one thing that one of the other unintended consequences of it. Part of the reason, part of the reason, although nobody will admit this, part of the reason for repealing, of course, the 21st Amendment is the Great Depression. We're smashing into the Great Depression. Here's a way to get people back to work. One thing to consider. One of the other things that was not a consideration was an unintended consequence to this was the simple idea of corruption. Now, we're used to the idea of corruption in government. Certainly, as Americans, we would come out of the Tammany Hall era. We understood that politicians were corrupt. But really, for the first time in our history, we saw something that we had never seen before, at least not on the scale that we had seen it. Certainly, back in the you know Wild West days, we had sheriffs and marshals that were you know, bad guys. But now with the explosion of the number of federal agents and federal police type agencies, it really spread even farther than that. And the corruption that went into this was incredible. Police officers who were on the take for the moonshiners and the the smugglers and, and whatever else to look the other way to, you know, not knock on the door of our speakeasy, but go get theirs over there. There are competition. And if you want if you want to continue your under the table payments, you'll go bust them but leave us alone. The corruption was shocking. Absolutely shocking to most Americans, but even more to the government. The government was like, we don't understand. We don't we don't comprehend why these people are doing this. Well, simple, because there was a hell of a lot more money in being corrupt than there was in being good. And you weren't going to stop it anyway. And why weren't you going to stop it anyway? Well, that's probably the number one unintended consequence of prohibition. Mark Twain once wrote, nothing makes a feller want something more powerful than being told he can't have it. Remember the scene in Tom Sawyer? 
where Tom is sick. He's got, I don't know, some kind of fever or something, and he's in, he's in bed for a couple of weeks. And when he gets up, the, 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 everybody's gotten saved in the, in the city. Everybody's gotten saved, including Huckleberry Finn. And they're all wearing their red sashes, and they've all given up tobacco and drink. And they're, they're reading tracts and Bibles and everything else. And he's wandering around town thinking, geez, I go away for a couple of weeks, and this is what happens. And he goes back to bed for a couple of weeks. And he observes. Nothing makes a feller, a feller want something more than more powerful than being told he can't have it. And then when he gets up again in two weeks, everybody's back to normal. He's okay with that. The fact of the matter was that people like to drink. I like to drink. Not a lot, but, but I like to drink. Many of you like to drink. Some of you, I know, don't. But a lot of us do. Whether it's a glass of wine, because our doctor tells us that red wine makes us healthier. Or, you know, in my case, a good tequila, whether it's a beer, whether it's, whether, whatever it is, we like to drink. And being told we can't drink just makes us want to do what? If you're told you can't have a donut, how eh. <laughs> oh, I want a donut so badly I can taste it. Sometimes we, we find ourselves in that position. And in much of America, people who didn't really support prohibition think about it even today the prohibitionist movement by percentage of population was always very small but it was very loud very very loud lips that have touched liquor shall not touch ours they carried their signs carry nation smashing you know smashing kegs with their axe i have watched my own father in the 1970s i watched my own dad walking down Larimer Street, running into alcoholics that he knew, winos that he knew, who had bottles in their hands. And I've watched my own father take bottles out of their hands and pour them down the drain. They were a very small part of the population, but they were very loud, very, very in-your-face about it. And most Americans weren't. Most Americans didn't care that much about it. But they went along with it because... It seems like everybody else is. Well, my neighbor seems to be in favor of this, so maybe there's something to it. They had some great public relations. And they got everybody convinced that everybody was on board with this, and everybody wanted it, and everybody needed it. But the reality is, once it passed, everybody was like, well, crap, I want a drink. This steak just isn't all that good without a glass of wine. I got done with a hard day in the mines. I want a beer. I want... In my case, I would have wanted the tequila. I wouldn't have loving a good margarita. In fact, I'm really contemplating going to get a, a good Mexican food lunch today because <laughs> I want a margarita so bad I can taste it. Just sitting here thinking about being told that I can't. The number one intended, unintended consequences of, 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 of prohibition was the realization that Americans like to drink and that telling them they can't for reasons that are questionable to begin with, and using tactics of conservative religious values, using their values and progressive tactics to enforce that, was in essence forcing religious values on American people. I got to tell you, that's the kind of thing that pisses me off. If I didn't drink, if I was still a teetotaler and I was told that the government was going to point a stick at me and tell me I can't drink now, that would make me want to drink. I wonder today 
you know, the 19 teens were a little bit different. But I wonder today, the 1920s were a little bit different. I wonder today if the, if, if the 18th Amendment would, would even survive a constitutional challenge. I kind of wonder that. I don't know if it would or not, but it would be an interesting argument and an interesting debate and an interesting discussion, wouldn't it? So those are just four of the unintended consequences, and, and there are perhaps dozens more. Crime exploded, violence exploded, corruption of, of government, not just police, but governments, local, state, even federal, but police in particular. Law enforcement was just stunned by how corrupt it became over prohibition. And the idea that I want a drink began to really permeate, permeate people. Through the 1920s and into the early 1930s, this became a real issue. And in the 1928 presidential campaign, it was arguably the issue. There were really two issues. Uh, One, Herbert Hoover was a fine, upstanding, good man. In fact, many historians will tell you that Herbert Hoover, Jimmy Carter notwithstanding, was the finest man to ever occupy the White House office, that he was honest as the day is long, that he was upstanding, that he was religious, he was faithful. He was all of those things. He was a good man, Herbert Hoover was, who found himself in a bad situation in a few years. The guy he ran against was a guy by the name of Al Smith. Al Smith was an ardent anti-prohibitionist. He believed that prohibition should be repealed, and he, he ran on that. Some of the best campaign button stickers you've ever seen are from the 1928's uh, election and Al Smith. Some of them are, well, many of them deal with the idea of I have a wet dream for Al Smith. Now, to you and I today, that has a different meaning. But in 1928, it meant I want to drink. I want to be wet again. I don't want to be in a dry county. They're wonderful stuff. It was a fantastic election. And Al Smith is one of those guys that I believe probably should have been elected president of the United States. He was Democrat. Didn't mean as much then. But he was a working man. He connected very well with the working classes of the United States. The problem with Al Smith was that he was a Roman Catholic. And that was the second issue in the 1928 election. Well, a lot of people loved his position on prohibition. Herbert Hoover, when questioned about prohibition, would just sort of go, well, you know, we'll see. He wouldn't give an answer that he would support it or defend it. He wouldn't. He was very non-committal on it either way. But Al Smith was like, "No, we're going to repeal that." But you're a Roman Catholic, and God knows we can't vote for that here in the United States of America. We can't vote for our Roman Catholics. And so Herbert Hoover was elected, and of course, then we know what happened. Black Tuesday, the Great Depression comes into place, and this leads to the 1932 election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt who, in and of himself, is not much of a drinker. But he knows that there's at least a half a million jobs out there. (laughs) So let's start to work on getting rid of this. And that's what he puts his mind to. We're going to get rid of prohibition. And we're going to get this fixed real quick. Stay with us. It's half past the hour. It's Plausibly Live, the Dave Bowman Show, right here on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. When we get back... We're still talking the 21st Amendment on Constitution Thursday on Plausibly Live. Stay with us. Science Underground with your host, Anissa Ramirez. This week, 
using salad as a way to reduce our dependence on oil with tires from lettuce. I'm Anissa Ramirez, and this is Science Underground. Here are the facts. Car tires are 80% synthetic rubber. That comes from oil. Each tire takes about 7 gallons of oil to make it, and there are almost 2 billion tires sold in the world every year. Scientists didn't think it should be that way. Day Kuhn Rowe, a scientist at the University of Alberta in Canada, has a plan to change that by finding plants that create natural rubber. Natural rubber originally comes from the Brazilian rubber tree, but that tree requires heat and humidity to grow. Rowe and other scientists are looking for other sources of rubber from common plants. One plant that's an unusual source of natural rubber is lettuce. Lettuce amazingly produces natural rubber with the same quality as that of the Brazilian rubber tree. Lettuce is a promising candidate because it can be cultivated in cold climates like the United States and Canada, which lowers the carbon footprint. Also, lettuce grows quickly. 80 years ago, Thomas Edison wanted to find other plants that produced natural rubber for car tires, but he abandoned that idea in the 1930s when chemists found out how to make rubber synthetically from oil. The first U.S. oil well was found in Pennsylvania, and it's been society's lifeblood ever since, but at a huge cost. Today, scientists are picking up where Edison left off. Plants only need sunshine and water to make natural rubber. Natural rubber is produced by photosynthesis. So the supply of natural rubber from plants is far more sustainable and it's better for the environment. Besides car tires, natural rubber is needed for latex gloves, balloons, toys, rubber bands, boots, pencil erasers, hoses, and about a thousand other products too. What scientists want to do is figure out how lettuce makes natural rubber and then transfer that process onto other plants. This important use of lettuce needs no dressing. When it comes to reducing our dependence on oil, let us proceed. I'm Anissa Ramirez, and this was Science Underground. It's called the Gone Herd Round the World. You are a grand narrative just waiting to be written. You are the ultimate conduit of life's rhythm. You deserve the very best vision and the very best version of yourself. And we're here to bring it out of you. I truly am fired up today to be driving your bandwagon, to be your biggest fan, to be avidly you, your secret weapon in the war against your sense of self. You don't have to tell anyone we hang out. Well, I love the idea of being your partner in crime, a tag team of two in unleashing your legendary, to optimize your outlook, to back the very best parts of you. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, to do whatever it takes to bring your own bold. All natural being with Brian Brody here on IPMNation.com. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at WRInstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. What's up, Whitey? Hey, Scotsman. (laughs) We're from the Ale Evangelist Show, and you are listening to the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back. Bosley Live, the Dave Bowman Show, right here on Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. You want to join me, the text machine is open, area code 209-565-DAVE. Email dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And, of course, we're on the web. 
Go to the Dave Bowman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and thedavebowmanshow.com. Plus, we're on YouTube. You can, if you go to thedavebowmanshow.com, up in the right-hand corner, there's a thing there. You can push that and get the YouTube channel. And even if you're listening to this later, you can watch the video of the show later, and you can see my library and my, my new haircut and yada, yada, yada. So when we left off, we were talking. We had just elected President Roosevelt, and we were getting ready to repeal the, the movement nationwide. People were beginning to understand that this, this 18th Amendment thing, this prohibition thing, is it's nonsense. It's creating more problems than it's solving. It wasn't going to be easy. That's the thing you need to understand. I said it before, the temperance people are loud. Not only are they loud, but they had a lot of influence over legislators, whether that was congressional or states. didn't really matter. They had the ability to call the tune, pull the strings, and legislators would dance to their tune, whatever it was. Though they were small in number, Though they were seemingly a minority, they had a lot of political influence, and this was seen as an obstacle that could not be overcome, at least in theory. But in February of 1933, it was introduced to repeal this idea to repeal the 21st Amendment. However, there was some, there was some deals with this. The fact of the matter was that there were some states that were particularly enamored with the idea of prohibition. I shouldn't have to recite them to you, but you probably can guess what they were. Particularly religious states in the Bible Belt and one particular state out west, which goes by the name of Utah. These states were seen as very strongly pro-prohibition. And the repeal of Prohibition might be fought by them, and there was enough influence there to stop it if it wasn't done properly. So when we wrote the, sec- the, 18th, or the 21st Amendment, we put in there, the 18th Amendment is hereby repealed. No more of that. Boom, boom. But then you get to Section 2. The transportation or importation of, into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquor in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. We put into the Constitution an amendment that says the state laws dealing with intoxicating liquors cannot be violated. So if your state doesn't go along with prohibition, guess what? Or the repeal of prohibition, guess what? You can't do it. And this really became an issue. It really became the reason that the, sec- that the 21st Amendment would end up being passed, because the states that, that had viable prohibitionist movements within their, within their borders understood that, well, even if the nation doesn't, we can still maintain it here. We can, the prohibitionists who were influenced the state legislators knew that they could still hold on to prohibition in those areas. And in fact, until 1966, Mississippi was still dry. And there are still counties in the United States of America that are dry because the states eventually, get a little ahead of myself here, but the states eventually would, would delegate that down to the municipal authorities 
rather than have to deal with it themselves in most states. In some states, Utah, and I don't know if they still do it or not, but when I lived there, Virginia, the states still maintain control of that. I was in Virginia in the service in, in the 1980s when Virginia finally, finally repealed its last blue laws, its last relics of prohibition, which meant that you couldn't sell alcohol on Sundays. I was there when they repealed that, and, and it, was, uh, it was quite the day. The next Sunday was quite the day, as, I mean, people lined up at the ABC stores to get, to get booze on Sunday. They could have bought it on Saturday with no problem. They wanted to buy it on Sundays, and they went and did it. Much like the people who would line up on April 7th, 1933, to get beer. How did we get beer when Prohibition still had not been done away with? The amendment had been introduced, it had been ratified, but it, hadn't, but it hadn't gone into effect yet. It wouldn't go into effect until December 5th. Well, therein lies a little bit of a tale. When I was growing up in Colorado, Colorado had been one of those states that kind of fought prohibition a little bit. It was very much a temperance state. And, and the big thing in Colorado, and I remember this very distinctly driving around, and maybe if you're my age, you remember this too. The stores would advertise 3.2% beer. 3.2 beer. Yay! 3 point. We've got three. And it would say that in big bullet. We've got 3.2 beer. 3.2% beer is 3.2% by alcohol volume beer. It's beer that has alcohol in it, but just a little bit. Your, your Ale Evangelist show could talk to you about some of these other beers that are up there in that 6, 7, 8. I think we've been as high as 11% by volume beers. Prior to Prohibition, most beers were in that 6, 7 range, but now they were less than half of that at 3.2%, which, you know, I mean, it has its effect. I mean, you, you've, you've seen people get drunk on 3.2% beer, but at the same time, it takes a tad bit more, doesn't it? Which has two effects. Number one, still getting your buzz, but number two, you're spending a lot more money on beer. And the beer manufacturers gotta love that. And this 3.2% beer thing has become the American standard for beer. Yeah, the Monty Python line about, you know, why is why is American beer like like making love next next on a river? <laughs> I'm not gonna give you the punchline, you can guess it. At any rate, the the appearance of this 3.2 beer was approved by law, even though the 18th Amendment hadn't technically been repealed yet. It wouldn't be repealed till December, but on April 7th, the president signed off on it, and beer, 3.2% beer, was now available in 19 states, 19 of the 48 states. It was available. Boom, there you go. It was so popular that this is where the, the Budweiser Clydesdales come in. They start delivering beer cases to people by this. The president himself received a couple of cases of beer, I believe from Anheuser-Busch, I don't really remember, uh, but he took those cases and sent them off to, uh, I think it was some, was it the cabinet? Uh, he sent it to some, no, he, was sent, he sent it to the soldiers, the, the hospital or the, the, the fort or something. He, he gave it to some people because, again, Roosevelt was not that much of a drinker himself. He did like to drink, but not, not necessarily beer. But, but there was this massive celebration. Yay, we, in 19 of the states, we can have beer. Some of the states, 
said, no, you cannot, and we stayed dry. We're not going to do that. Said Mississippi, 1966, Kentucky was one of them. Utah was one of them. I suspect Colorado was, but eventually all the states fell in the line, and you could get 3.2% beer pretty much everywhere across the country. But it was 3.2% beer. Prohibition came and went, and now it was legal to drink in most places, and some places it wasn't. It's that second stanza, that second paragraph, though, that has created the problems. The transportation or importation in any state, territory, or possession in the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. So you can go back to seeing how this has affected the American psyche throughout our history. Smoking in the bandit is all based on that second cause of the 21st Amendment. Some states would not allow the importation of beer from other places. And you had to smuggle it in. Made for some good movies. There were court cases that went to the courts. Wait a minute. Does this mean that the states can decide what can come in and what can't come in? The court was caught off guard by this. Does this really invalidate the Interstate Commerce Clause? I mean, that's what some people are arguing, that the Interstate Commerce Clause has now been subjugated to the 21st Amendment. And we could spend a lot of time on the court cases. But at the end of the day, what you need to know is that the court has finally gotten its act together after all these years and figured out that what it really means is the states can control and license intoxicating things inside their borders. It does not trump the the Commerce Clause. And many states have figured out along the way, wisely so, that there's money to be made in the taxation of alcohol, and why would you want to limit that? In fact, some states have figured that out so much that they have become dependent on the taxation of particularly beer. One state in particular has essentially funded itself on the taxation of 3.2% beer. Anybody want to take a guess what state that is? Dun, 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 dun. Your answers, please. That's right. What is Utah? Utah, for so many years, has gained a significant portion, not all of it, but a significant portion of its tax income comes off the taxation of beer. I know your brain is going, wait, Dave, wait. Of all the states in the union, Utah? Yes, Utah. I had my first beer ever in Utah. Of all places, Utah gets its reputation for being what it is, and it is, but it's a pretty good manifestation of Dave's third law. The more pious someone is, the less likely they have anything to really be pious about. The first strip club I ever went to was in Utah. I'm not making this up, folks. I grew up there, <laughs> okay? So, so Utah funds its government, basically, on this 3.2% beer, certainly on the local levels. And believe me, they sell a buttload of beer in in Utah. 
I, you know, again, I belonged to the Salvation Army when I was in Utah, and we were teetotalers, and you would have thought that of all the places on the planet, Utah would have been, you know, the driest of the dry. It weren't. The driest of the dry places I've ever been to was Virginia until they repealed their blue laws, and then, then all of a sudden they weren't. But the, the, the point being here that Utah f- understood that they made a lot of money, and most of the states figured this out, and they began to pass laws allowing the sale and importation of, of alcoholic beverages. Some states didn't. There's still some argument about whether or not you can send alcohol through the mail, about whether you can import alcohol from somewhere else. I have a very good friend of mine who is a distiller in Georgia. Um, Cobb County, Georgia. I forget the, forget the name of the city right off the top of my head. I got it. Anyway, they make they make vodka. They make very high end vodka. And I'd like to get a bottle of it. I'm not a huge vodka drinker, but my wife is. Well, I'm huge. I mean, <clears throat> not huge. I mean, she's maybe drank one whole bottle of it in the entire nine years we've been married. But she prefers vodka. I it's not my thing, but I'd like to get a bottle of that. But it looks like I'm going to have to go to Georgia to get a bottle. Because of the importation laws and the different different kind of stuff that goes across this. I'm not real happy about that, but, you know, look, it's just a bottle of vodka at the end of the day. And yes, as Jay says in the chat room, these are sin taxes. That's right. They, that's what they are, consumption sin taxes. But even with that, you end up with unintended consequences, don't you? In repealing this, you are facing the temperance movement's political influence. And it was believed that the legislators who had been bought and paid for by the temperance movements, by the prohibitionist movements, would not honestly consider the amendment. It was believed that Congress people who barely managed to pass this and get it out there, and it believed that state legislatures would, would not do so. And remember that to approve an amendment, what is required? Three-fourths of the states meeting in their legislatures, or dot, 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 anybody? That's right, conventions. Conventions. Huh. And if you notice, the 21st Amendment specifically requires, in Article three, Section 3, this article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by conventions in the several states. This is the only amendment that requires requires it to be passed by convention, not by legislator. And the reason for that was the belief that the temperance lobby was so powerful that even though it was so small and so minority, that it had enough political influence and enough drum beating that it could scare legislators into voting against it and not ratifying the amendment, not ratifying the whole process. And so there was this belief that, oh my God, if we... If we allow the state legislatures to do this, it'll never pass. And that, by the way, is a problem. And so they made it via convention. And of course, over the course of uh, a few months there, starting in, let's see, Michigan ratified in April. Which, by the way, you'll notice is three days after National Beer Day. So they were pretty sure this was going to pass. Within a few weeks, Uh, it had gotten down to almost the number of requisite states. The 36th state to pass it, to thus enact it on December 5th, 1933. Anybody? 
That's right, Utah. Utah is the state that pushed temp prohibition off the cliff. Maybe they realized then that they could make some money on this deal, and so they did that, and off they went. Maine and Montana did it later. South Carolina did it later. Following states took no action on this. You ready? Georgia, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, and South Dakota. Refused to even consider it. And as far as I know, to this day, have not. Away it went, and it left us in a position where state governments and eventually local governments could make money on those taxes, and we've seen that happen. But even that leaves us with some unintended consequences. In Utah today, one of the biggest problems that Utah is facing is that beer manufacturers are tired of making 3.2% beer. 3.2% beer is going the way... Mm, it's going the way of MySpace. It's, it's, it, it, it's, you know, it's not good. It doesn't taste good. I mean, as, as the ale evangelist once told me, it's designed to be drank, drunk, drunken. It's designed to be consumed as coldly and quickly as possible. It's not good beer. <laughs> so they don't like making it. They, 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 they can make more money on something else. The distillers and, and, Brewers could be. The problem, of course, is Utah has a state law. Remember Article Section 2 of, Article, of Amendment 21? Utah has a state law that says you can only sell 3.2% beer. So either the state legislature is going to have to face the temperance organizations again and, and the church and pass a law saying we can make more money on this, which is what I suspect will ultimately happen, or they're going to lose millions, millions in tax revenues on a local level, from the sale of 3.2% beer. The other unintended consequence of this is a little more subtle. And I talked about this, I've talked about this over the course of many, many, many months. There has been a change in tactics and strategies and use of government power. Prohibition failed miserably. I don't think many people are going to argue with that. Why it failed is, I mean, there are as many arguments as that as Carter has pills. The ultimate reasons for its failure, however, have led to a shift in thought processes and ideas. I have asked the question for as long as I've been doing this show, so now on 10, 12 years now, Why aren't those who oppose pick something? Pick anything you want. A constitutionally guaranteed right. I don't know, the Second Amendment. Why don't those who oppose the Second Amendment put this out there? If they're really as powerful as they think they are, if Americans are really as anti-gun as they think they are, why don't they just put this out there? Get it amended, repeal the Second Amendment. The answer lies in the 21st Amendment. In order to get it passed, because of the perception of the lobbying groups that are involved, they had to make it so that the states could still ban it, which is an exact opposition to the idea of incorporation, isn't it? They had to allow the states to maintain control in order to get the entirety of the amendment repealed. Well, that's no good. If we really want something repealed, 
but we still have to allow states to do it, and we can't use the 14th Amendment then to incorporate, how does that work? Moreover, because of the corruption that we're seeing in it, because of the the problems that we're seeing in it, there's a realization that even if you could pass that, you would continue to have the same problems you had with prohibition with whatever it is that you have now banned. If you ban guns, only criminals are going to have guns. And believe me, you're going to make criminals out of people who otherwise wouldn't have been, just like you did with prohibition. You're going to make criminals out of people who otherwise wouldn't have been. And there is going to be massive, massive amounts of money involved with this. Think of the fortunes that were made via prohibition, via drawing, selling of illicit alcohol. Those things are going to continue to happen. And so there's this idea here that there's this realization that we can't really amend the Constitution. The idea of amending the Constitution to get away with the Second Amendment is, is, a, is a non-starter because of what happened with Prohibition and subsequently the 21st Amendment. And I guess it was that realization to me that kind of opened my eyes a little bit here. It also allows states to regulate intoxicating things within their borders. You want to know why states can get away with placing so many restrictions on the sale of marijuana? It's rooted in the ideas of the 21st Amendment. We can regulate these things and tax them and control them and license them within our states. It's, to some degree, it's why the state of California, for example, can charge upwards of $10,000 for you to get licensed and trained on how to be a a barber. All of those things come back to the 21st Amendment, which is almost a strike back against the idea of incorporation. And the realization that, boy, if they do that, then what do we do, is problematic for people who favor those things. Even temperance people, even people who believe strongly in prohibition aren't really advocating to bring back prohibition, but they do advocate for laws that restrict the availability of it. And you kind of see how that tactic, that idea, that that value has shifted across there. It's intriguing to see, and it's intriguing to watch, and to finally really kind of understand that. The 21st Amendment continues to impact us today because some states are going to have to make some changes. And whether you drink or not really isn't the issue here. The issue is, is it government's business to even do that in the first place? What would have been different in this country if the 18th Amendment had never been passed in the first place? I don't think you could ever pass something like that today. You certainly couldn't pass a repeal of the Second Amendment. It wouldn't happen. You could try. But I doubt seriously that it would happen. And ultimately, it would probably be repealed with the same kind of with the same kind of restriction. You're going to have to uh, you're going to have to put that on there. And who knows what's going to go there? Twenty first Amendment to the United States Constitution. Real quickly, we talked last week about the um, the National Guard issues, and so that's uh, last week's Constitution Thursday. This week, I noticed this came across the wires yesterday. From stripe stars and stripes, California, California, California has agreed to send troops to the border. 
They have agreed to send National Guard troops to the border. It, it's kind of a um, it's kind of a funky way of doing it. They, they they refuse to do law enforcement, which they're not going to be doing anyway. None of these troops are going to be doing that anyway. And the governor, Governor Brown, wrote a very convoluted explanation for why he was going to do this because he wants to stop multinational gangs from coming across the border and he thinks the National Guard is going to do that. So he can support that mission. I just thought it was interesting that after all this hullabaloo, we end up sending troops anyway. (laughs) It makes you wonder what's going on, doesn't it? All right, I got to get going. Tomorrow, I don't know what we're doing on Friday, but we'll have a Friday show tomorrow at 10 o'clock, so join us then. Please take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there, so don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Plausibly Live, I am Dave Bowman, and this is my show, The Dave Bowman Show. Plausibly Live on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Make sure you check us out at podcast99.org. See you tomorrow, everybody, at 10 a.m. for a new episode of The Dave Bowman Show. Possibly Live is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. To contact Dave directly, call or text area code 209-565-DAVE. That's 209-565-3283. The email address is dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. For more information or to hear past shows, go to www.plausiblylive.com. Hey, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television.